We're going to continue in our teaching series this morning. Uh, last week would have been week two, but we skipped that for obvious reasons. So we're going to pick up where we left off this week, um, which would make this week two of our sermon series entitled uh, Set Apart. And we'll just, just stay there for a second. Set Apart, a biblical view of holiness. So big word, big idea for most people when you just think of holiness, it, it usually brings up kind of like heavy feelings, serious feelings, daunting feelings, um, but it's a, it's a mega theme in God's story. Um, and I think it's, it's super important that we like, we dive in, like what is this word, what is this, what do we even mean when we think of God's holiness and the fact that God calls us holy like in Christ he washes us. He makes us new. God calls us holy. So I reckon um, we would do well to like, let's, let's dive in deep. Let's, let's explore this um, because it's good news. Uh, this morning, um, as we look at a specific aspect of holiness, we're going to begin and end with two very familiar stories. You guys like stories? The classics are always the best. So, this morning we're going to begin in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1. Uh, The story of God, the Bible, begins with the story of creation. God is a creative God. He is the creator. Which, by the way, is something radically unique about this God that we worship and sing songs about. Um, who invites us into relationship with him. Um, it all, wasn't always so that people saw, like, quote-unquote, God as creator. Um, but he is. In the ancient world, that would have been quite a radical starting point. God is creator. He loves creation. He loves the world. He loves the dirt. He loves the animals. He loves us. So in the beginning, God speaks And where there was once nothing, or just simply void and chaos, God speaks into the darkness and he says, let there be light and the darkness flees. And then he begins this process, this beautiful, poetic, I would say, process of bringing order and beauty. He creates the world. On day one, light shines in the darkness. And then he separates Um, He creates the heavens and the earth, and on the earth he separates the land and the water, and and then then he creates the birds and the sky and and all the creatures and the ocean, and then he creates like the the animals who who are living on the land, and then finally on day six, he creates the humans. He creates um, a couple. They're named Adam and Eve. God creates them, God creates us, in his own image. Unlike any other created thing, God creates the humans in his own likeness. Of all the creatures, we're the only ones who bear his likeness, you could say. Among all the creatures from the beginning, we were set apart. We were special. That's the way the story's told. Um, And then the creation narrative in chapter 2 It ends with this statement, the very end, chapter 2, verse 25, and it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a picture of innocence. No shame, 
No fear, no pretense, no insecurity, no anxiety. Just two people in relationship with each other and God, just enjoying all of the goodness that God has created. They were naked and without shame. Then, in chapter 3, the story takes um, quite a, a sharp turn for the worse. We're told of this crafty creature. It's actually a, a personified as a serpent. I don't know if it was actually a serpent or if there was a metaphor for something. I don't think it really matters for the sake of the story. But we're told that the evil one, he appears in this garden that the humans are living in and he tempts the humans. He goes to the woman specifically. Don't know why. He goes to the woman and he tempts her. He tends the humans to doubt God's goodness, and they fall for it. And in essence, they choose in that moment relational independence over intimacy with God uh, through trust and obedience. Tragic part of the story. The result of that decision, giving into that temptation, believing the lie, or rebelling, if you will, the result, we're told that their eyes were opened, this is chapter 3, verse 7, and they realized that they were naked. They were vulnerable, insecure. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then we're told when God went looking for them, he found them hiding because they were naked and afraid. Fear, shame, hiding, withdrawing, covering up, these were all the results of the humans choosing relational autonomy or um, choosing to be their own arbiters of good and evil, is maybe a more accurate way to put it. Choosing to believe the lie of the enemy over the goodness of God. When they believed the lie, something happened. Like fundamental, something, a shift took place on what seems almost like a, an identity level. They begin to see themselves differently. And thus, they stopped acting like God's special, set-apart, beloved creatures made in the very likeness of their creator, and they go into hiding instead. And their shame compels them to cover up. Anyone relate with these, these words, these feelings? <clears throat> this is the human story. This, um, this is the story, or at least the beginning of the story, this is the part of the story of holiness lost. Uh, the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, uh, the story continues, and we meet two brothers. And we're told that one brother decides to murder the other um, because of religious propriety. Something to do with the sacrifice and God favoring one over the other. I mean, it's, it's the classic uh, uh, inevitable result of like human brokenness 
religious war. One brother killing another in the name of religion. I mean, what gets, what's worse than that in human history? Murder in the name of God. This is holiness lost. And this is part of, this is part of God's story. This is part of our story. Um, so what are the implications? Um, if you haven't figured it out, this is set apart, part two. Holiness lost. This morning, we're going to wrestle with this part of the story, this part of holiness, that although we were created as God's special creatures, designed to um, image his likeness, something went terribly, terribly wrong. And that's holiness lost. Holiness lost reminds us of two things, or at least I'm going to focus on two things this morning. It's a two-part sermon. How about that? It doesn't feel right. There should be a third part. We'll see what happens. Holiness lost reminds us of two things, two things I want to emphasize this morning. Number one, holiness lost reminds us that new life in Jesus is more than just a new Nice, uh, fill in the blank. I wrote down more than a nice wristwatch. I don't know why that was the, the thing that came to. I don't even wear a wristwatch. But think of like the thing that you really, really like, uh, like maybe a new laptop. I thought that's, that's probably a better analogy. Or the latest phone that you've just been dying to finally get. The thing, the guitar. Maybe, um, I don't know, fill in the blank. Holiness lost reminds us that new life, salvation, if you will, forgiveness, redemption in Christ is much more than a nice wristwatch. We're reminded that in Christ, redemption New life is actually the cure to a terminal diagnosis. When I remember who I used to be, it helps me to truly cherish the gift of salvation. I'm just going to get old school for a second. I'm just going to break it right down. Okay? Holiness lost, when I trace my story, God's story, all the way back to the beginning, and I'm reminded, oh, there, in the beginning I was created, and it was really, really good, and I re reflected God's image, and there's something inherent in me and creation itself that's not been um, altogether lost, like you can still see signs of God's um, creative beauty everywhere. It's been described as like God's fingerprints on vacation, um, on creation, Fingerprints on vacation. <clears throat> but that's just chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. This is a part of the story. Something goes terribly wrong, and it would seem as if holiness is lost, and we're reminded, oh, this is part of the story. This is part of the story. When Jesus reaches me, when his blood was shed for me, when I'm adopted into the family of God, and I'm made into a new creature in Christ, as the New Testament puts it elsewhere. What I receive isn't just like a cool new gadget. 
Like, man, this is super dope, and I'm pumped, I'm hyped, until I'm not, because, I don't know, I've got a whole pile. Anyone like me have, like, a small pile of old wristwatches that you once loved, but the battery died? Just me? (laughs) Holiness lost. It reminds me, actually, no, this new life that God offers me in Christ It's more than just another super, super nice gift. This is the cure to a terminal diagnosis. Apart from Christ, I'm just as lost as those two brothers. The inevitable result is that creation devolves into hell. In fact, if we want to keep reading, if we want to just get really heavy for a moment, that is the end result. That's the, apart from Christ, that's the end of the story. We all die and go to hell. I, I, don't, I don't mean to sound trite. I, it, just, it feels awkward to say out loud, if I can be honest. But that's, that's the end of the story. But in Christ, the gift that God gives us, the gift of salvation... It's, um, it's incomparable. It, it, when I think about everything else I can pursue in life, all the stuff, whether it's my moral performance, my, my religious um, integrity, or my, uh, the things that I might sort of collect, all my cool toys, all of these things begin to seem like nice, but kind of crap compared to the gift of salvation in Christ. What a gift. What a gift. What an incredible gift. It's the kind of gift that uh, might compel one to want to worship. It reminds me of how deep God's love is. How incredible God's work on the cross really is. Holiness lost. It reminds me of the gift. Um, okay. I'm, I'm reminded who I used to be, and it helps me to cherish the gift of salvation. Let me qualify that. It's super unhelpful to obsess over the sins of your past. For some of you, like you're not trying to remember who you used to be. Like you don't actually need to be reminded. Oh, I get it. I, I, I was like... I was, like, headed towards hell at breakneck speed. Like, please don't remind me of that life that I was saved from. And one could rightly argue that it's really not helpful at all um, to obsess over the sins of your past. It's equally unhelpful to forget them altogether. God does forget our sins in the sense that he doesn't hold them against us. He doesn't bring them up every time we fail, or he doesn't use our past against us some petty means of manipulating us into like being better, acting better. But God does instruct us to remember where we came from. When telling their story of deliverance, God's people always included the part where they were once living in slavery. That was always a part of their story. Remember 
from where we came. Remember when we used to be slaves? They always included that part in their story before they got to the part about how God rescued them and led them through the desert and across the Jordan. We see the same pattern in the New Testament. Let me read three um, passages to you. Ephesians chapter two. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in God's kingdom and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians chapter one. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And lastly, Titus chapter three, verses three through five. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, hating ourselves. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. There was like a dozen more, but I had to... I had to pick my favorite three. This is part of, like, our story. Remembering holiness lost, who I once was, empowers us to live in deeper gratitude. It helps us to approach one another with greater humility and compassion. I'm no better than you. And it reminds me that I'm not loved because of my stellar track record, past, present, or future. It reminds me that I'm loved because God loves me. Full stop. That's good news. Now, the second point is the one that I'm kind of excited to get to. Um... Holiness lost reminds me that I am no longer who I once was. Um, the enemy, that ancient deceiver, wants nothing more than for me to forget who I am in Christ, who God created me to be from the start. Holiness lost reminds me of who I once was and that I'm not that person anymore. There's a, a distinction. Um, the Christian faith, Christianity, if I can put it that way, it's a very bizarre um, religion. It's a very bizarre. Uh, typically, um, when we think about sort of philosophies or ideologies or various religions, um, the basic idea, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think generally speaking, the way we think of these things is I was down here, um, had some problems, um, I was sick, I was um, 
broken, I was rebellious, whatever your story was. And then, and then I got religion and I began to apply religious principles in my life and I started to sort of like up and to the right. And I got better and I got better and I got better. And that's, that's the general idea, that's the trend, that's how religion works. Um, and it doesn't have to be like um, explicitly uh, spiritual, it can be any sort of moral code, political sort of uh, way of, of doing life, ethical framework, whatever. Um, but that's the basic idea. God meets us down here and he begins to sort of, if I apply the principles and I work my way up, um, there is some truth to that. Because the Bible is full of wisdom. And in fact, if we apply godly wisdom to our lives... Um, oftentimes, like life, things will go much better for us, actually. But that's not the big picture. And that's not the essence of the Christian story. Christianity is bizarre in this sense. Um, we all start down here in our own ways. Sometimes in like really obvious ways. Like once you were a murderer, and you know, like you killed your brother. Or once you were just um, a very greedy, selfish, um, prideful person. Once you were just a plain old, should I say it? Let's say Westerner. You're just a plain old Westerner, all right? Just, just like me, just like everyone else, just kind of living for comfort and security, collecting your, your, your stuff, and that's, that's, that's where you were. And then something happens, and you come to your senses. God gets your attention. Maybe it's dramatic. Maybe it's very subtle. Maybe the whole process is very subtle of you coming to your senses, realizing that I need a savior. I, I need my creator, the one who designed me, who knows me, who actually loves me, to meet me there and not just set me on a, a better trajectory, but literally lift me up out of the mire and make me new and set me on a rock. This is what God did on the cross. This, he, he died for me so that I don't just end in death. So that I don't just live my life thinking that what I really need to do is just to try to be more moral. When God says, no, that's not the problem. The problem is something much more internal. It, it's like a, something to do with how we experience and do life and attempt to interact with one another on an identity level. God meets us there and he makes us new. It's not just sort of improving our trajectory like he puts us on a whole new plane because of Jesus' work on the cross. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm given a new heart. The Bible says that I'm adopted into the family of God. I become a beloved son or daughter. And then I begin to live that out. That's very unique about the Christian faith. It's not just to do better, try harder. It's allow God to rescue you and make you into his beloved child to restore his image and then live life accordingly. Um, where was I? Holiness lost reminds me of who I once was and that I'm not that person anymore. I may struggle, I may stumble, I may have bad weeks or months or even years, decades, if you're really struggling, but my true identity is rooted in a much deeper reality. I'm loved, I matter, I belong 
always because nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. That's done. That's settled. The victory's been won. That's the cross. Ironically, instead of simply making me feel bad about my past, who I once was, holiness lost reminds me, um, it reminds me of how I used to be, and if framed within the grander story of redemption, then ultimately holiness lost, it actually amplifies the climax of the story, my present reality, which is I'm not that person anymore. I'm not who I used to be. I'm different. I'm not just trying to do better. I'm different. I'm not who I used to be. I am loved. I do matter. I belong. And how about this one? I'm strong. I am strong in the power of his might. <laughs> you feel like it? How are you feeling lately? You feel strong? Who are you? Who do you used to be? Who does God say you are now in Christ? Like, this is what holiness not lost gets us to, to ask these big questions. Like, what is this really all about, following Jesus? Am I just trying to master, like, moral platitudes? Or am I living out this new identity who God says I am? Can I distinguish between who I once was and who I am now, regardless of how I feel about it today, regardless of, like, my track record this past week? Holiness lost reminds me that in the grander story of redemption, I'm not who I once was. I can let that go. I can bury that in the dirt. And with both hands, cling on to who God says I am now. Holiness lost empowers me to remain secure When the world, the devil, and even my own inner world of self-hatred and condemning thoughts wants to convince me that I'm still a lost cause. Nothing's changed. You're still that guy. It's always going to be this way. This is simply who you are. Are you with me? Ever have those dark moments where it's like, dang it, I'm doing it again. The same thoughts, the same behavior, nothing's changed. And that's the voice of the enemy. That's the serpent. That's the liar, the tempter, who would say, yeah, you're, you're out. You, you had a good run. You changed a few things, but let's be honest. Look at you. Look at you. You're still exactly who you've always been. Holiness lost empowers me. It reminds me. No, no, no. I know the difference. That's who I once was, but I'm not that guy anymore. Yeah, I may be having a bad week. I may have been struggling for the last, how long have we been married? You know, life gets hard, right? And sometimes it's tempting to think, like, who am I kidding? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. 
Look at me, same patterns, same struggles, same failures, holiness lost reminds us, no, 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 that's who I once was. You wanna talk identity? Let's talk identity. I know the difference. That's who I once was, but because of Jesus's victory on the cross, he's dead. I'm now alive. That's who I once was. That's the identity I'm leaning into. I'm not just trying to correct my trajectory. I'm leaning in full weight into who God says I am. As this is this is us right to the heart of the gospel. And I know you know this. Because I think you know this. Some of you know this. Some of you think you know this. Um, but God knows we need to hear it over and over and over again. We need to be reminded. Um, holiness lost reminds me of who I once was and that I'm not that guy anymore. So I told you we were going to begin and end with two very familiar stories. Second story, Luke chapter 15. This is my, I think it's my favorite parable. Probably my favorite parable. It's the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. Or the prodigal father, if you will. If you've read Tim Keller, the prodigal son who was once beloved, who decided he was going to leave home. You almost get the idea that this young man, the quote-unquote prodigal son, thought that perhaps there's a better life out there. Got it pretty good here, but perhaps there's some, perhaps my father is holding back some of his goodness. So he says, Dad, can I have my inheritance early? This is, this is the story. This is Luke chapter 15. Dad, can I have my inheritance early? Shockingly, his dad says, okay, sure. He gives him his inheritance. He leaves home and he goes to a far off country and he squanders everything he has. Eventually gets desperate and he has to hire himself out to one of the, the natives of that land um, and he gets paid to feed pigs. Get the impression that he doesn't get paid a lot. Maybe he gets like some straw to sleep on with like some semblance of shelter, but he essentially has nothing. And one day we're told that he finally comes to his senses. It's like he wakes up, something happens. Maybe he had like a really, really bad day. Maybe he had a dream. Maybe he just finally had enough. And he comes to his senses and he thinks to himself, shoot, the servants in my dad's house have it way better than I've got. Maybe if I go home, I can, I can convince my dad to hire me on. And so he starts to rehearse this speech in his mind. Um, it goes something like this. He says, I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy. That's, that's, that's identity speak. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You get the feeling his dad was like waiting, standing out on the porch every morning, just thinking, I wonder if this is the day my son will come home. His father sees him from a long way off, and it says the father felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. My goodness, 
If that's not the heart of the Father, I don't know what is. And the son said to him, he begins his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worth thinking of myself in that way. I lost it. I'm no longer your son. I'm no longer worthy. But the father cuts him off. And he says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Cover my son. Which is exactly what God does to his children in the garden. Genesis 3.21. They attempt to cover themselves because they're ashamed. And they're like, man, we got to cover up. We need to hide and we need to cover up. So they, they create like... Uh, loincloths out of fig leaves and they attempt to cover up in Genesis 3.21 we're told that God himself covers his, his children he covers us this is what the father does he says quick grab the robe the best robe which I think is the father's robe cover my son put it on him and put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. That's holiness lost. This is who my son once was. That's not who he is anymore. Now he's home. Now he's been covered. This is a prelude to what we commonly refer to as the gospel, like the good news that God didn't just leave us in the mire. He came down and he did something for us that we could never, ever, ever do for ourselves. He dies for us. He sheds his blood. The son of God sacrifices his life to give us new life. And with that comes more than just forgiveness. Like we get new identities. We get welcomed home. We get covered. We get the family ring put in our fingers. We get new sandals. Like, and heaven celebrates. Every angel in the universe erupts in celebration when one lost son or daughter comes home. And even though the son was convinced in his own mind that he was no longer worthy, when he finally got home, his father saw him and like, I don't know, obviously you're not worthy. This is the part I love about the story. This is what I really love about um, the Bible. It's so painfully honest. It doesn't pretend like, well, you know, it's not that bad. You're not that bad. You're, you're nice. You're, you're lovable. <laughs> to the contrary, the Bible is actually like shockingly, brutally honest. Like, actually, no, you're really bad. Actually, you're worse. <laughs> you're worse than you could possibly. Let's, let's, let's peer into the heart. No, you're way worse than you realize. And it just levels the playing field. It's, it's like a, it's, it's a death blow to the ego. You're worse than you realize. And God loves you more than you will ever, ever be able to fathom. Um, sure, you're not worthy. Okay. What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> How about your home? How about what, this is what's happening now. I'm restoring you. I'm covering you. 
and I'm bringing you inside. And none of this nonsense about, but let me, let me, let me earn my way back. Hire me on. And, and maybe I'll spend the rest of my life paying back what I squandered, proving to you that I, I am worthy. No, no, sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there. That's not how it works. The father covers the son and he says, this is who you are. You were once dead, 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 dead. And now you're alive again. You were once lost and now you're found. You were once far off, but now I've brought you near. Remember who you once were because that's not who you are anymore. Um, that's good news. That preaches. That's good preaching, people. Now, let me show you a powerful image. Recognize this? Judah? Did someone say Judah? (laughs) There it is. (laughs) No, that would be me. This is me. I think I was uh, either a sophomore or junior in high school. Isn't that funny? This is who I once was. Occasionally, occasionally, the enemy... This, this is how the devil, I'm talking about the devil, okay? Wants to come at God's kids and try to convince you, no, no, th- this is who you still are. You're still that same insecure um, person who perpetually, is, is perpetually convinced that you don't belong. And so you have found ways to compensate, uh, to cover up, but you know, and God knows, and most everyone else knows, that it's, it's a farce. It's not working. You're covering up because your shame hasn't been dealt with. This is, this is who you really are. This is who you really are. And the enemy will try to exploit a weakness, maybe something I did, some behavior, some mindset, and quickly hold this up. Yep, remember who you are. This is who you are. And holiness not Holiness lost. Reminds me, like, oh, no, no, I recognize that picture. I recognize, but you know what? Despite my failed attempts at acting holy, which is a noble endeavor, despite my failed attempts at being who God is creating me to be, I know who I am. I know who I once was. Fine, you want to hold it up? Let's hold it up. Let's look at it in all of its awkward glory. Yep, that's who I once was, unworthy, ashamed, hiding, constantly trying to cover up, constantly trying to justify my own sin. Yeah, that's who I used to be. But I'm not that person anymore. He's dead. I'm a new creation in Christ. Uh, Let's go to the next slide, please. Let's have some fun. You know who that is? Any guesses? You know who it is. Really? No guesses? It's so obvious to me. That's Hannah Gilchrist. Give us a wave, Hannah. By the way, I kindly asked permission to share these. Um, With everyone except for one person, I sort of asked permission after the fact. Um, Let's go to the next one. You know who that is? Who is it? Adam Lazenby. That one's not too hard. That's like obviously Adam. What a goofball. 
Adam, we love you. He's up in that room discipling my children. That's your boy, Scott. That's your boy. All right, let's go to the next one. That, of course, is Rochelle Lazenby. Look at that face. You can see her, like, feistiness all the way back then. Oh, by the way, let me, let me just sort of add this, bit of a yeah, side thought. Um, this, obviously, is a sermon illustration, right? It's a metaphor. Truth be told, there's parts about this kid who I'm like, man, I wish I could go back. Like, those, those were good times. I looked good in a Speedo back then. You know what? I'm just saying, like, I played water polo. I was, and that's, I wish I could go back. Um, so the, the metaphor breaks down a little bit. <laughs> Um, and there's something about, like, I would have loved to have, like, known that Rochelle Lazenby. I mean, what a, what a wild woman. Like, that would have been amazing. So you get the metaphor, right? It's not perfect. Let's go to the next slide. There we go. <laughs> that was, that couldn't have been that long ago. What was that, like, last year? No. <laughs> Probably a few years ago. I had to get permission from it, like, this morning. I'm like, hey, Hannah, by the way, I'm going to put a picture on the screen. Are you okay with it? Okay, last one. There we go. That was from like over a decade ago, and Hillary hasn't changed at all. I'm like, that's incredible. Um, I just love Jared in that picture. Anyways, that's a, we can leave that one up. That one's nice. Actually, let's go back to mine. Let's go back to Will. Oh, there we go. There's, there I am. I'll take the, the embarrassment. Um, holiness lost. It's a simple point. Reminds me of who I once was. And that I'm not that person anymore. It empowers me to lean in to my new identity. And when my, my life, like my, my behavior, the things that I get up to day in and day out, uh, those things don't define me. They're not separate from me. Obviously, what I do is very much a part of who I am. But even if I'm having a bad week, month, year, or decade, even if the enemy wants to put this thing in my face every morning when I wake up, like, this is who you are. You thought you were different. This is who you are. No, no, no. Let me, let me, let me go back to the story I remember who I once was, and I remember thinking, I am no longer worthy to be called a child of God. I've done too much. I still feel the shame. Those, those feelings, those memories are so vivid, so real. Holiness lost reminds me of who God says I am. The father cuts me off mid-speech and he says, quick, get the robe. Cover this man. Put the ring on his finger. My lost son, who was once dead, is now alive. He has come home. Time to celebrate. That's who I am. That's the identity that I'm, I'm leaning into and living out. That's holiness lost. Um, the parable, 
there's actually um, a second half to it. Uh, as much as I love the first half, the other half, the, the, the second half, is also very important. It goes on to tell the story of the older brother. So when the young man comes home and his father restores him, loves him, brings him inside despite his, him being convinced that he's no longer worthy, um, we're told that the older brother who'd been out in the fields, he, he hears the noise from the party. And um, he, he goes to his dad and he's like, dad, what gives? What's, what's going on? What's the party? He's like, oh, your son. I mean, my son, your brother. He's home. He's home. We thought he was dead. He's come home. So we're celebrating. We've restored him. And the older brother is like, are you kidding me? I have been serving you faithfully all of these years. Not once have you thrown a party for me and my friends. And my loser brother comes home who's truly unworthy. You're celebrating his return? The older brother says, I have been serving you all this time. I am worthy. I have proven myself worthy. What gives, dad? This is the tragic ending of this wonderful parable. Two sons. One's convinced he's not worthy because he's screwed up. The other one's convinced that he is worthy because apparently he's just done everything right. He makes the choice to lock himself out. That's heavy. That's heavy. It reminds me um, that whether I'm doing really, really good or failing miserably, who I am is not determined by my performance. My worthiness, my belovedness comes from the Father. He loves me because he loves me. I'm a child of God. I am a new creation in Christ. Not because I've impressed God. Because I've worked so dang hard to earn my place in the family. The father's response to the older son is, my son, what are you talking about? Everything I have is yours. It's always been there. I've always loved you. Your service is great, but that's not what makes me love you. That's not why we celebrate. And so maybe for some of you, You've been living your whole sort of religious life, as it were, thinking that God is impressed by your uh, performance. You have been serving faithfully. You've hardly sinned at all in your mind. And therefore, you deserve a place at the table. You deserve to belong. You deserve to be loved. And where has that gotten you? How is that working for you? That also leads to death. It just leads to this perpetual, never-ending cycle of having to prove your worth. There's good news wherever you're at. God says, actually, your performance um, isn't as impressive as you think. You're worse than you can imagine. Imagine. 
the whole human race. You're so special and totally not special. The good news is God comes down. Can we stand together?